Welcome to the Glyndebourne podcast. I'm Peggy Reynolds and I'll be looking at two of the early 20th century's most intriguing operas, Maurice Ravel's Le Espagnol and L'Enfant et les Sautelèches. It's not unusual for an opera house to stage a double bill, with two pieces making up the evening's entertainment. But General Director of Glyndebourne David Picard feels that Ravel's Le Espagnol and L'Enfant et les Sautelèges work especially well together and especially well for Glyndebourne. I think one of the interesting things about the double bill is that although they are written by the same composer and they are paired together and indeed it made complete sense for us at Glyndebourne to put these two pieces together. They're of course totally different in subject matter. In a way Lyra Espagnol is the first example of operatic farce. It is a, a ridiculous plot about infidelity and flirtation and involves a lot of moving around of grandfather clocks uh, in a way that you might see on a stage in a farce in the West End today but actually was being set to music in 1911. And I can't think of actually any operatic farce that predates this particular piece. L'Enfant les Sautelèges is a much gentler, much more fantastical, much more ephemeral piece, really, which has this great sense of magic in the music and has a wonderful, touching story, which I think leaves you feeling very moved at the end. What does link the two pieces, and what links, I suppose, everything that Ravel wrote, was this unbelievable mastery of orchestration, so that... The colours that he creates in both these pieces, although they have different sound worlds, are so alive and so bright and so multicoloured. There was really nobody, and I suspect there's been nobody since, who wrote for the orchestra with such flair and imagination. Musicologist Richard Langham-Smith, research professor at the Royal College of Music, agrees that these two pieces work very well together. The thing that I think links them together, first of all, is the twinkle in Ravel's eye. And secondly, this absolute delight in, in colour and parody and saying things which are serious but with a light touch. Le Espagnol is a sort of satire on the oversexed uh, Spanish woman who can't find a, a satisfactory man except the furniture mover. And L'Enfant et les Sotilèges is something which is about the growing up of a child. Uh, again, it's very funny in places and it has wonderful parody, but it is essentially a serious subject. Well, that's a quick summary of the two plots, but let's think about what was going on here and the time in which these two operas were produced. Le Espagnol premiered at the Opera Comique in May 1911. It was based on a comédie bouffe by Frank Noir that dated from 1904. Maurice Ravel was partly attracted to this play because of the setting. He was born in a town close to the French-Spanish border, 
His mother sang Spanish folk songs to him as a child. That influence remained with him all his life, as pianist and musicologist Dr. Emily Kilpatrick explains. All his life, Ravel was fascinated by Spain. He considered his own heritage, in a sense, partly Spanish. His mother was Basque, but she'd spent much of her youth in Madrid, and his parents had, had in fact, met in Madrid. So there was a real family connection for Ravel with Spain. It was also an era where composers were looking to music of other countries, to the exotic for inspiration. And Spain had drawn French composers really since Bizet's Carmen. That was the, the really crucial work. So I think for, for Ravel, it's that combination of, of the family heritage, his love of exotic musics, and that just the colours and the rhythms of Spanish music would, would, would have drawn him. Ravel's father also influenced the music and the themes of Le Espagnol. He was an engineer and an inventor. He used to take his children round factories to admire the most up-to-date machines. And Ravel said that such excursions made him sensitive to music, to every kind of music. Emily Kilpatrick. Ravel was always interested by mechanical things. His father was a was a very fine engineer. He actually worked um, when he when Ravel's father met Ravel's mother. He was in Spain building railways in the company of Gustav Eiffel. So he was a very distinguished engineer, and Ravel definitely inherited that that side of his father's brain, the engineering side. He, he composes like an engineer in a way, and, and he was fascinated by, by mechanism and by mechanical sounds. And you can hear this very clearly, um, certainly in the opening prelude of Le Caspagnol, where you have all the clocks ticking it at, at different rates. Um, in the first production of the opera in 1911, the production score for this opera shows just how precisely all these clocks were, were worked out and it shows where they were and who was setting them off. So there were, there were clocks in the orchestral pit, there were some on the stage, there were some in the wings. So that the, all these things were being worked separately by, by different people at the same time to create this, this mechanical sound, this mechanical sort of fantasy that Ravel was, was dreaming about. Um, you hear that again in the middle of the opera when, when Ramiro is left alone in the workshop and he's thinking, he's comparing um, women to clocks at this, at this time um, and, and you hear him sort of examining all these clocks moving around the workshop and that this little mechanical symphony sort of starts up again. In Le Espagnol, Concepcion is the wife of Torquemada, the clockmaker in Toledo. Each week, he goes out to wind up all the town clocks, and Concepcion takes the opportunity to entertain her lovers. On this occasion, her plans are thwarted by the presence of the mule driver, Ramiro, who's come to have his watch mended. Concepcion hassles her lovers into hiding in the clocks. Then she gets the well-built Ramiro to carry them up and down stairs to her bedroom. In this, Emily Kilpatrick sees a pure French influence. In a sense, this isn't really a Spanish opera. It's only Spanish by setting. 
It's a very French farce. It's very much in the tradition of, of Molière. You've got these, these five characters, Concepcion, her husband, Docamada, and her three prospective suitors. And the way that Franck Noir manipulates these characters, it's like a dance. In, in that classic farce tradition, you have characters coming in and characters coming out. And the whole point is, is, who is Concepcion going to take up to bed with her? How, how these characters interact, hiding in clocks, in and out of clocks, being carried up and down to the bedroom, none of them quite coming up to scratch until, until the very end. It's classic French farce. And because it's farce, the whole thing is carried on in a conversational style exactly as if it were a play. Il reste, voilà bien ma chance. Le jour de la semaine où les fous et loin, mon unique jour de vacances ne sera-t-il gâté par ce fâcheux témoin? This speech-like style was not new, but Ravel made it a speciality of his own, as Richard Langham Smith and then Emily Kilpatrick explain. Conversation in music had really been, in France, had been going since the 1890s, when Debussy began to erode the idea of melody in favour of recitation or declamation, so that the words and the meaning would become much more highlighted, in a sense. He didn't want to write songs which were pretty tunes. He wanted somehow to heighten the words. Now, Ravel, who really started composing just about the end of the 19th century, would have been very aware of that style. At the time he composed Le Raspagnol, Ravel was very much interested in setting text in a much more conversational way, so in imitating the natural rhythms and inflections of, of the spoken voice. And so he's, he writes specifically on the score of Le Raspagnol, he says, with the exception of Gonzalve, who is a very caricatured, operatic sort of voice, the other four characters must speak and not sing. Ça, madame, c'est une paille, c'est une coquille de noix, on lève ça avec un doigt, c'est de la très petite ouvrage, votre chambre. And then, of course, there is the racy subject matter. Concepcion has only one thing on her mind. There's a running joke about winding up the clock, which is as old as Tristram Shandy and the suggestive invitations of 18th century ladies of the town. But there is a serious point here too, for time is the enemy of all pleasure, and the ticking clock reminds us always that time is short. Let us not waste time with words when we should be enjoying ourselves, says Concepcion to the poet Gonzalve. In the space between Le Espagnol from 1911 and L'Enfant et les Sautilèges, which premiered in 1925, time and death had changed everything. When the First World War came, Ravel tried to become a pilot, but he ended up driving a truck at the front at Verdun. In the midst of all of this general slaughter, his beloved mother died in 1917. 
And at exactly this time, Ravel received a libretto by one of the most famous of French writers, Colette. Colette had originally composed a text for a fairy ballet a couple of years earlier, but the parcel got lost on its way to Ravel at the front. When Ravel did read Colette's libretto, he saw at once that there were clear affinities between his work and hers. Emily Kilpatrick. The whole context of L'Enfant et Sortelège is very different to that of Le Espagnol. It's different for Ravel. When he accepted this commission, Ravel had just lost his mother and his attachment to his mother was the strongest emotional attachment of his life and he was devastated by her death. And the other interesting thing is when Colette wrote the libretto, she had just lost her mother. And for Colette, again, her relationship with her mother was probably the, the most important relationship of her life. And so I'm sure that he felt in reading this libretto, this, this whole, the, the emphasis on the relationship between, between mother and child is, is very significant. If the world had changed for Ravel personally, so too by the early 1920s when he actually started work on the piece, the musical world had also changed. First David Picard, and then Emily Kilpatrick. One of the things that appears in L'Enfant Les Sortelèges is, is a jazz element, and, and again, jazz in the popular music field was just coming to the fore, and I think that was a very radical moment for audiences at that time to hear uh, what then was a very strange and very foreign form of music suddenly appearing in an opera. Black and costo, black and sheep, black, 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 jolly fellow, jolly fellow, black. I punch so I punch your nose. I punch, I knock you, you stupid shows, black, black and So by the time he came to compose L'Enfant et Sortelège, the musical and artistic milieu had changed so greatly, being now in, in the post-war era, the 1920s. And you hear in L'Enfant et Sortelège the diversity of music, the way that every scene, every character has such a different sort of music. It's very much a 1920s sort of thing. And in particular, in the scene of the Wedgwood teapot from the Chinese teacup, you'll hear him incorporating jazz and popular elements. It's a real foxtrot. Um, there's a part for a cheese grater amongst amongst other interesting percussion instruments. That that movement in particular, for me, is is really typical. It really typifies the era in which it, it was written. was innovative, so too was the text. Emily Kilpatrick feels that Ravel was inspired by the variety of sound and rhythm in Colette's libretto. The poem of the dragonfly, Où est tout, je, je te cherche, le filet, il, il te prise autre chair, longue frêle, these lovely short lines and, and long, long word sounds, toi chère, longue frêle, turquoise, tes topaz, they're very beautiful 
beautiful sounds and they're very different from the sounds and the rhythms of say the cup and the teapot scene black and costa black and chic black 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 jolly felly so that that variety of of sound and poetry is something i think ravel was particularly drawn to if you read all of colette's writing she just knew how to poise a sentence she uses rhythm she uses colourful words. Her writing is, is just a delight to read. And I think she, she puts together words into sentences very much in the way that Ravel puts together notes into phrases, that same sense of poise and line and shape and, and direction. I think there's a very natural match between them in the whole way they thought about their work. And I think there are a lot of similarities between the way they work. They both talked about themselves as, as artisans rather than artists. They were both incredibly and very consciously dedicated to the craft of, of what they did and downplayed the whole idea of inspiration. And out of that craftsmanship comes an absolute masterpiece. It's not just the music. It's not just the text. There is a whole underpinning of psychological investigation that is delicate and yet powerfully convincing. Richard Langham Smith. The piece at first, I think, was seen as a pretty cameo, as something which was um, you know, an entertaining piece. And I think it's more recently we have discovered that underneath it is a much rawer side and also a much more psychologically probing side. This opera is about growing into adolescence and it divides very clearly into two parts with a magic garden in the middle beautifully made with what we call a swanny whistle and the first part is of a child rebelling violently against the mother and in the second part there is a growth into altruism. The child realises that he's done damage to all the creatures and he grows up through a process of what is called reparation and he binds the foot of the squirrel and he says sorry to the dragonfly and all that kind of thing. Now that's a very interesting thing because the follower of Freud, Melanie Klein, who was um, actually a child psychologist very very uh, esteemed during the 20th century, uh, went to see the opera and I find what she says very interesting. One of her main concepts was this idea of reparation, that to grow up the child has to in some way go back on its naughty self, on its destructive elements, and begin to realise the altruistic. And that's why I think that of all pieces about childhood, Ravel's opera is supreme. I think it's also basically about love and sex because to me what happens in the opera is that at first the child is deviated, he deviates from his path of destructiveness because he meets the princess and the princess is one of the longest scenes and he is in wonder as he reads his picture book and the princess sort of comes to life. And in that way, his feelings for a beautiful woman are inaugurated, if you like. Then, 
that's all very well to have a sort of picture book romance, but he has to discover sexuality. And that is done through the scene of the two cats where they're copulating on a roof or something at night. And I think that music should be very sexy and it is physical love. And then he is in a way more complete as an adult. Each of the many different sections of L'Enfant et les Sautilèges is particular and individual. Some are funny, some are disturbing. But at the end, the whole opera resolves in a reconciliation that can speak to every one of us. For me, the moment where Maman appears again in a halo, almost of like she doesn't, the character doesn't appear, but she is summoned, that's the most moving moment for me of, of the whole opera. And there's a wonderful musical thing that Ravel does. He brings, he introduces Maman with the same musical gesture that he introduced her in the first scene, this, this cadence, which is an imperfect cadence. It's a questioning cadence. And, at the ve- and she comes back in the last scene with that same cadence by, played by full orchestra. The very last bar of the opera takes the same gesture but turns it into a perfect cadence, 5-1. So the same gesture closes the opera. So the way he transforms that questioning gesture into an answer is a very beautiful musical moment and and you, you sense that listening to it, you sense the completeness of it.